0: Memento Mori is a reminder of death and mortality, but we simply want to remind you of the value of your life and all the beauty that is held within it. Together, we will walk alongside the lives of creators, opening a window into their minds and their work. First, we want to better understand how their self has developed over the course of their lives, and how that self extends into the world through their craft. Then we want to see that craft through the eyes of its creator, diving into the nuances and meaning behind a specific piece of their work. I'm Ben Ballman, and this is Their Memento. Alrighty, guys. My name is Ben Ballman, and welcome back to Memento Podcast. I'm lucky enough to have a really incredible guest here today, flying out all the way from LA. Uh, Mystery guest, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Oh, well, mystery guest, I like that. My name is Siegfried Siegfried Tiber. I'm a magician. I've been a full-time professional magician for the last 15 years of my life. I was born and raised in Ecuador. That explains the accent. And I moved to Los Angeles about 10 years ago to pursue magic as, as a performance art form.
0: That's excellent. I'm, I'm really glad to have you in the studio today. Talk to you a little bit more uh, about your career with magic, what brought you to it, um, and what it really means to you. And so the first thing I do want to ask you is I tend to look at creatives in general and the work that they produce as a form of communication. Um, and so in that way, I'm really curious how you view magic, you know, uh, not necessarily just as a performance, but also as a means of connecting to your audience as well. Um, and so before I even say that, I'm curious, how do you define yourself uh, as a creative? Just Not necessarily just as a musician, but maybe beyond that, possibly as a storyteller as well.
1: Absolutely. You hit the nail right on the head. The way I like to think of myself is as a magician and a storyteller. For me, I when I perform in front of an audience, when I create magic, when I rehearse, when I script my performances... I keep an eye on the magic slash surprise slash astonishment aspect of it, Mm -hmm. a performance that hopefully surprises and delights people. And on the other hand, I also think of the storytelling aspect to it. It doesn't necessarily, for me, it doesn't necessarily mean a traditional story with a beginning, middle, uh, and end, but I think of it as storytelling in the sense that it's my hope that every piece of magic revolves around a central idea that I want to communicate to the audience. For me, each piece has an idea at the core of it. It's not the visuals of Here's a cool magic trick. Ta-da! The cool magic trick is an important aspect to it because if people come see me expecting a performance of magic, you have to deliver that, of course. But to me, the storytelling is also an important aspect. Uh, 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 roughly 50-50 in my mind, in the way I approach my magic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that really comes across in the performance I was lucky enough to see of you when you visited Nashville, um, but also a lot of the work that I've seen of yours online. Um, I feel like there's this kind of conception about magic where there's this sleight of hand, where you're distracting the audience with one hand while you're kind of doing the trick with the other hand. But with a lot of your performances, you kind of flip that on its head a little bit when you have the audience uh, captivated almost by this monologue where you're just exploring these different concepts um, that you mentioned earlier in this narrative form of you know, luck and chaos and chance. Um, but you're also at the same time performing this magic trick and so you have that really interesting duality. Um, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about how you try to explore these different narrative concepts like luck and chaos and chance within the performances that you have.
1: That those subjects, chance, chaos, lack the role chance plays in our our lives. That has been one of my main obsessions for the (laughs) last (laughs) 10 years of my life. And that's something I've been exploring on the stage in front of an audience for the last uh, four or five years. And the way I try to approach it is... There are two ways to approach it. As a magician, specifically, you can have a cool trick. There is this cool trick. For the sake of argument, I can transform the ace of spades into the queen of hearts. That sounds nifty. (laughs) Now, what is the story I can tell using that? On the other hand, another starting point is there is this idea that I want to tell and that I want to explore on a stage in front of an audience. What magic trick would be a good fit for that? The way I try to approach my work lately, as for the last five years or so, is starting with the idea and then try to find the magic trick that complements that. For example, one of the performance pieces you saw when I was here a few months ago was the coin toss trick. Yeah. I invite every member of the audience to play a coin toss contest. I ask everybody to stand up and everybody think either heads or tails. We flip a coin and people are eliminated progressively until only one person remain standing, and there's a surprising revelation to that. And as we are doing the trick, that there's the fact that the subject that we are exploring is that statistically speaking, but by mere chance, if people are making chance decisions, there will always be someone in the room who guesses correctly one after the other after the other. Mm, uh. If you think about it, for example, the performance we did here at the Vanderbilt University, I think we had about 120 people in the room. Mm. So it might have taken us eight to nine coin tosses to narrow it down to one person. If you think about it, someone in that room guessed the outcome of a coin toss nine times in a row. That's amazing. If, if, if you take and look into that in isolation, that's crazy. That's insane. Uh, one of the um, lines I mentioned is after this person has guessed over and over and over, I tell people as far as, far as I'm concerned, this person has never lost a cointos in their entire lives. <laughs> I think all that can be quite interesting. Um, the, a cointos is the quintessential representations of chance. We all dream of being able to beat the odds, of guessing the outcome of a coin toss. Then again, one coin toss, 50-50, one in two, but when you take it further, 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 nine coin tosses in a row, being able to guess that that is wish fulfillment at its purest. So that is, I think, an interesting idea to be able to explore in performance. For me, that piece developed with this obsession. What if somebody would guess the outcome of a coin toss over and over and over and over? And that idea was on my notebook for maybe three, four years (laughs) until I found a magic trick that would complement that and would allow me to explore that on the stage.
0: That's so cool.
1: Uh, My favorite author in the whole world is Neil Gaiman. He wrote, among others, um, American Gods, who was turned into a TV series. um, The Sandman, which is now a Netflix series Mm, as well. He would say that as an author, as an author of fiction, at some point in his life, he realized that you don't ever learn how to write a book. You only learn how to write the book that you are currently writing. You are done with that book, and then you have to start with a blank page. Another analogy he has pointed out, he he has said that sometimes the writing process feels like having to drive from Los Angeles to New York in thick fog. You can (laughs) only see a few feet ahead of you. You know where you're heading, but you are making the way as you go along. Mm. That feels very true to me. Sometimes there is this exciting idea. I would love to explore on a stage in front of an audience, but how do I turn that into a theatrical performance rather than me standing, monologuing for five minutes? Some other times you have the way that technical resources to do a magic trick but you want to find a meaningful presentation a meaningful story to go around it so it's sometimes it starts one way sometimes it's, it starts the other way if you are lucky you are going to find a meaningful idea or narrative and you are going to find a badass trick or (laughs) illusion to complement that
0: absolutely interesting interesting that also kind of makes me a little bit curious then is you you have this really interesting approach then to magic that i i I feel like i might not be as well versed in the magic scene but I've, i've never come across anything like that with this much intention around what is being communicated as well as uh the performance itself and so i'm curious did you come into magic really fixated on this idea of connecting with the audience and communicating with the audience? Or did that approach kind of slowly develop as you honed your magic craft?
1: That approach slowly developed. Mm. To me, magic has always been about... Human interaction for me, it's an excuse to reach out to friends or family or strangers, asking them for a few minutes of their precious time and attention, whether that's five minutes in an informal performance or 90 minutes in a formal show, Mm. and attempt to create something all of us can share and celebrate together. So, that's always been my approach to magic an excuse to get a few minutes of people's time. And share something with them however the approach of trying to connect every piece of magic with a narrative that evolved over time initially it was hey let me show you something cool look here's the ace of spades i snap my fingers and here's the queen of hearts that's a cool trick everybody's surprised and amazed but there's no narrative or idea beyond that Behind that, beyond, hey, let me show you something cool. Nowadays my approach is to try to communicate an idea that hopefully will stay with people for a little longer. Yeah. I love
0: that. You're giving them entertainment, but you're also giving them you know value and knowledge and something to take away with them and consider in the future. Exactly. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um right so also kind of in your performances as well, I, I've noticed this really interesting intention and almost awareness and control over the energy that is within the audience. You know, you, you predominantly work with smaller audiences, more intimate settings, and you you seem to have this really direct connection with the audience, almost like a maestro kind of conducting uh, the waves of energy that are kind of coming through the audience. And I'm, I'm curious as well, there's no way you could have just kind of had this innate skill to do that. I I have to believe that you've developed that over time. And so I'm curious if that's the case, if you're not some incredible prodigy, which you obviously are as well. um, How have you kind of come into
1: that skill? I wish I was an incredible prodigy. But no, it has developed this this way of, orchestrating the performance Mm, and hopefully feel and direct the energy in the room. That is something that has come with hard work and introspection and failing a lot in front of an (laughs) audience, going back to the drawing board and trying again. I love the analogy of of a maestro conducting the orchestra. I, I, I think that's essentially what happens. And in the performance arts, we often talk about the energy in the room. and that doesn't mean anything esoteric at all. Mm. It's the same kind of energy when if you are you know somebody to whom you are close. Let's say your best friend or your partner, you walk into the room and you know this person is having a terrible, terrible day and they are extremely upset, you know. No words are necessary. You know because of this person's demeanor and the energy that that creates in the room, you know that something is going on. Yeah. We, then again, it uh, might be a combination of non-verbal communication and reading facial cues and facial expressions, but we all know that is something is happening. When I'm on a, per, uh, on a stage, when a performer is on a stage, i see the performer's role of uh, as the role a conductor takes you want to work straight all that and take the audience through the journey you need to be able to orchestrate that and then again as mentioned in my case that's something that um, has been the result of a conscious effort it didn't come naturally it didn't come easily. It was very, very hard at the beginning. But yeah. uh, at this point, I'd like to think i've I've grown used and comfortable with the dynamics of performance and how to drive that energy in the room.
0: oh, absolutely. And I, I can personally attest as an audience member myself, even in a, a larger audience like that of a, a entirely filled uh, Vanderbilt auditorium, you were still able to really assert a control over the audience and almost kind of like, lead them in in the way of a conductor. I think that is a really good way to compare it. Um, And so kind of in that same vein of a maestro, I'm curious, are you familiar with the maestro himself?
1: The maestro in magic? Yes, sir. Oh, of course, we're talking about Juan Tamariz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is this almost legendary Spanish magician. If you ask... 10 magicians, 10 knowledgeable, uh, 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 devoted magicians. Who is your favorite magician out there? Nine out of 10 might tell you Juan Tamariz, Spanish performer. He is the best of us. He's in his 70s. Luckily for us, he's still active. He's still in good health. He's still performing. He's somebody who has been very, very influential in the Art of Magic. This is not exaggerating. Anybody performing magic nowadays in this day and age has been influenced in one way or another by Juan Tamaris. This would be like saying that if you're a musician anywhere in the world, no matter your genre, you have been influenced by Beethoven. Because <laughs> because his presence in music is so rich and goes back so deep. The same with Juan Tamariz, maestro. The,
0: the man himself, the man himself, puts Spain on the map as the, the magic capital of the world. Um, and so what I'm actually really curious to ask you in context to him uh, is his sort of philosophy around magic. You know, I know he, he writes a lot of books, and a lot of his books, to my knowledge, aren't actually even on like specific tricks or anything like that but around his ideas and philosophy of magic and kind of like as looping back uh, to the psychology of deception as well and how he approaches that. I'm curious if you took any inspiration from those ideas into your own craft.
1: Absolutely, yes. Those, uh, Juan Tamaris has published three books on the theory of magic, so to speak, where he teaches you a few tricks and techniques, but only as a way to illustrate greater points and ideas. So these three books are mainly on the theory of magic, on the psychology of deception. And then again, if you're a magician performing anywhere in the world, you have been, whether you know it or not, whether you know it or not, you have been inspired by that. I have taken a lot of of. My, my work is heavily heavily influenced by that. My I I would think that my style, my performance style, and his are somewhat familiar mm-hmm. because I'm Latino. I talk with my hands a lot. I gesticulate. I get a little loud, high <laughs> energy. Uh, that is Juan Tamariz. I I. Feel taking a lot from that, naturally organically, because that's who he is as a person. That is who I am as a person. But besides similarities in performance styles, his writings on theory and psychology have been very, very influential since the very beginning, for me, since the very beginning and still to this day.
0: Wow, that's incredible. It, it's so interesting to me, that that idea of kind of going to the foundations and the fundamentals of what magic can be and giving people the tools to kind of build up from there in their own respective directions and express themselves through magic, through that kind of toolkit. It's so yeah. interesting to me. Um, and so moving forward a little bit, I'm curious um, about your relationship with Andres Castro as well. You seem to have talked a little bit about the impact that this individual has left on you and in your of feelings towards magic so i'd love you to talk a little bit about that
1: yes andres castro the ma uh, the magna the magician he was the person who became my first mentor mm-hmm. as mentioned i i was born and raised in ecuador i got interested in magic and just a few months after I got interested in magic, and after my first performance, I had the extreme good fortune of meeting this person, Andres Castro. Ecuador is a tiny country where still to this day the magic community is practically non-existent. I had the extreme good fortune of meeting this person who was very knowledgeable. And he also was very generous. He was always willing to share his ideas. And he taught me many magic tricks and techniques. And he taught me about the psychology of deception. He was the first to tell me about Juan Tamaris the maestro. Mm-hmm. And he also pointed me to many other influential performers and books and ideas. However, my main takeaway from my first mentor, Andres Castro... He taught me to care about magic, to, he led me to realize that magic is an unconventional art form most people don't experience very often. It's not unlikely that whenever I set foot on a stage as a magician, there might be more than a few individuals out there for whom that will be the first and last time experiencing magic in their whole lives. So it's up to me to to impress upon them that That's magic so can be a lovely, exciting, profound art right. form. You kind of bring them into it a little bit more. Absolutely. We magicians <clears throat> ramble a lot about the fact that some people claim that they don't like magic. If you ask 10 people out in the street, maybe one or two might tell you, hey, no, I don't really like magic. Maybe they haven't seen magic in their whole lives, (laughs) but their conception somehow is that they don't like magic. To me, that is as outrageous as to say that, no, I don't like music. What? <laughs> Maybe you haven't stumbled upon the, upon the kind of music that you like, but it's out there, whether it's rock and roll, whether it's pop, whether it's classical, whether it's jazz. There is something that will definitely appeal to your heart. I think it's the same with magic. You might not like one style or another, or you might not like one performer or another. Maybe your first and only experience of magic was with somebody who did a poor job or that maybe yeah. did rubbed you the wrong way. But chances are that there's a style of magic or there's a particular performer that you will absolutely love.
0: It's core to the human experience. You can't not enjoy that. Um, and so I'm curious then, you you seem to kind of take on this burden of understanding that magic isn't necessarily widespread in uh, like modern culture right now and so you understand that the people that you're performing for you have to leave that positive impression you take on that pressure to do so um, because it very well might be their last time or their only time experiencing magic so I'm curious then how else uh, do you approach magic kind of in context to other pop cultural phenoms, kind of like music as well and painting and these other forms of expression that might be a little bit more widespread
1: Oof, that's a good question I like that I think magic has a very unique position within the performance arts. I try and experience as much art, and and I, I try to read as much as I can. I try to experience as much live performance as I can. Someone pointed mentioned this a few years ago, and it had a deep impact on me. Of course, as a magician, it, it it's I wish people would go out and see magic as often as they can. I wish people would be a little more aware of magic, they would see magic a little more often. However, uh, someone, Joshua Jay, a a very knowledgeable magician from New York, he pointed out the fact that maybe part of the reason why magic is still so special Mm. is that people don't experience it very often. Which has pros and cons. You can, I personally listen to music five, six hours every day. Well, I'm in the shower. When when I'm exercising, there's constantly music on the background. I watch five to ten movies every week. Hmm. I try to read at least a book every week, so I I try to experience as much as I can. Most people have a standard and have seen a lot of movies, a lot of stage plays, they've listened to a lot of music. Then again, most people haven't experienced much magic. I think it would be different if, if you were to go see a different magic show every day, maybe because of the very nature of magic, Maybe you need to sit a little more, 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 uh, uh, more um, interspaces. Maybe once or twice a month. Might be nice, but still, I yeah. I would wish people would experience more magic more often, so it would be a little more present in that si- zeitgeist and in people's consciousness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of gives it that more value to have it intersparingly, but absolutely, I agree. It would be incredible to have it be almost like a cultural norm. Kind of, I like how you said it in the zeitgeist. Absolutely. Also, yeah. I like to say, like I I can really tell the impact of you consuming all these different forms of the arts. You know, music. Um, and literature and all these different aspects and how it plays into your performances. It it really does show. Um, And so, just before the break, I do want to break into a little bit more of your history and how you're going from Ecuador as a trained engineer to magic to LA and becoming a trained actor and kind of seeing how all these different influences coalesce into these performances that you have today.
1: So, in a nutshell, I was born and raised in Ecuador when I was a I enrolled at the University for Mechanical Engineering. A few months after that, for whatever reason, someone lent me a book on card tricks. Mm. I learned the first magic trick from there. I did it for my family. They freaked out. I freaked out that they're freaking out. (laughs) Then again, for me, that led me to realize that magic is a really powerful vehicle for human interaction. I was 19 at the time. Fast forward five years into the future. I graduated from mechanical engineering. I told my parents I wanted to do card tricks for a living. I loved every second of mechanical engineering, but magic seemed more appealing at the time. I did magic full-time for two years in Ecuador. Then I moved to Los Angeles to... I studied acting, but I never aspired to be an actor. I wasn't interested in acting in and of itself. I always saw acting as a vehicle for my magic performances. So as you mentioned, my some of my backgrounds are in mechanical engineering, then in acting, and then um, in magic informally through performance and reading and through a few mentors and of course every single one of these pieces plays a part there. There was an influential figure in the art of magic, his name was Divernon. We magicians would say that music had Beethoven, physics had Einstein, we magicians had Divernon. Mm -hmm. He lived until an advanced age, and he was still performing late in life when he would introduce himself by saying, good evening, everybody. My name is Vernon. I'm 78 years of age. I've been studying magic for the last 72. I wasted the first six years of my life. (laughs) So I got interested in magic when I was 19. I never felt I wasted all that Mm, time. I think that all live experience plays into my performance. Absolutely. The years in engineering, I like to think, have taught me how to think in a very structured way, sure. which can be very helpful to magic. My training in acting has taught me how to move and talk um, on a stage. Something that was very, very valuable for me from having training as an actor, was to learn how to work from a script how to say more or less the same words every single night and hopefully make them sound very fresh with the difference that in magic the kind of magic i do is very interactive so my Part of the conversation, of course, is scripted, but I never know how the audience will react. So, of course, I have to be on the tip of my toes right. and, and very present in order to react to yeah, people. Yeah, throw
0: some improv in there, I got you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. And so what I'm curious You've spent two years in Ecuador performing Magic and then moved to L.A. Um, and pursued that full time. How did these two different magic communities compare to each other um, and like the support that you received and, and trying to make a name for yourself within that space?
1: Vastly different. Uh, as mentioned, the Ecuador is a tiny country. The magic community still to this day is. V- practically non-existent there's only a few a small handful of full-time professional magicians back home in ecuador i had the extreme good fortune of meeting my first mentor and meeting a small circle of people a tiny magic community back home in ecuador who were and still to this day are extremely supportive in Los Angeles, there is a place called the Magic Castle that is the mecca of modern magic. Mm-hmm. I moved to Los Angeles then again to to pursue acting in service of magic, but I chose Los Angeles instead of New York or London or Argentina. There's a, a strong acting uh, community in Argentina as well. Point being... I chose Los Angeles because of this place, the Magic Castle. If you are an actor anywhere in the world, and if you want to be on a stage, you go to New York. If you want to be behind the camera, TV or, or or film, you go to Los Angeles. If you want to be a magician, you go to Los Angeles because of the Magic Castle. Interesting. So there's a big community there. I've met other mentors. I've met people who have become peers and dear friends there. Uh, it's a much wider community. And, and because of that also people are pushing the envelope in Ooh. different ways. And there's very interesting work being done in Los Angeles. Right.
0: Do you find that uh, the creatives there, the magicians there, they tend to collaborate a lot or does it get very competitive in that you have all these different talents trying to make a name for themselves?
1: There is a lot of collaboration. I, I think this surprises many people that the magic community... More often than, more often than not, is very close and very generous. Lovely. Like anywhere in life, in any field of human endeavor, there's some competition and some friction, but predominantly in the magic community, that there is there is um, camaraderie, a, a lot of goodwill from one to another, and, and willingness to help and to ultimately to push the art form forward
0: Man, that's incredible um and i think that's a really good note to end on for this first bit it's been really lovely getting to know you a little bit better um and i'm excited to talk a little bit more about your performance in the next part
1: looking forward to it hey
0: everyone thank you so much for listening to memento podcast i want to take a quick moment to thank vandy radio for sponsoring this podcast vandy radio the soundtrack of campus life you can listen to Vandy Radio music 24 7 on the Vandy Radio website or by downloading the Vandy Radio app. You can also look up our host Showtimes to tune into specific shows for creative, curated content. I'd also like to thank Vanderbilt Video Productions for supporting Memento Podcast. Find VBP content on Vanderbilt Video Productions YouTube channel or learn more on their website. Okay, back to Memento. All right, guys, welcome back to Memento Podcast. I'm excited in this segment to break into uh, one of Siegfried's performances for the famous pen & Teller. Uh, it's actually his second one. His first one swept them away, completely fooled them, has the trophy sitting in his house, I expect. Um, but in this in this part, I really want to break into that second one uh, and kind of also talk a little bit about how you're exploring um, that narrative aspect that I really feel like In the second one, you you do kind of focus on that narrative and and build up the performance over time. Um, But yeah, to start, I'd love you to talk about uh, the progression of your work and how it led to this performance, because I I know you started off more so uh, in these close-up intimate settings with Magic, and then you were were kind of shocked when COVID hit, and now you have to transition online and really adjust your craft. So I'm curious how you were able to do that. Uh,
1: Boy, it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> i sure. As, as you mentioned, I started doing close-up magic for uh, smaller groups of people. Close-up magic is a good fit for five to maybe 20 people tops. A few years ago, about five, six years ago, I transitioned into what we magicians call stand-up magic or platform magic that lends itself for larger audiences, up to maybe 200 people. That is the perf- kind of performance I did here at Vander- Vanderbilt a few months ago, I, which then again, I think we had maybe 120 people yeah. in the audience. That transitions from close-up to stand-up magic, <gasps> it was painful, enjoyable <laughs> at every single step, but, but it was hard. It didn't come easy. It felt almost like... <gasps> learning to speak a new language where at the beginning it's awkward and you feel very restrained and eventually you are able to loosen up and you ease into it and feel more and more comfortable. The same thing happened when COVID happened, the world went went mad, lockdown orders were announced. A few months after, just maybe two three months after lockdown happened, I started doing virtual performances on video chat on Zoom. And that again felt like having to start all over again. The main restriction there, if you will, is that even with the amazing technology that we have, because 20 years ago that would have been impossible, of course. But even with platforms like, say, Zoom, you, if you're doing a performance, you have to mute everybody else because otherwise the software goes crazy. So I would finish a performance piece and there would be silence. And I can see people on the gallery view being very excited and smiling, but still not hearing an applause. The energy that we were talking about a moment ago, Mm, it was brutal, it was very hard.
0: Yeah, because it's it just it's making it entirely one way. It, it's cutting off that interaction. That interaction is is in how you talk about it, like the fundamental core of your performances.
1: Absolutely, one way that is key. In I think that all live performances communication flows both ways more often than not. Let let's say um a uh, music a rock concert, mm-hmm. the musicians are playing. The people are cheering and applauding. The audience might not be saying words, but there's a back and forth flow of energy. In my performances with Magic are very interactive to the point that I'm asking people questions and they are making decisions. Sometimes people join me on the stage and all of a sudden it came to communication flowing one way. And as you mentioned, that was pretty, much of the case when i did my second appearance on penn and teller fullas that was in the middle of lockdown so part of that was still in play
0: yeah absolutely and so you you go from a bunch of major shifts uh and then get invited i'm not sure exactly sure of the timeline but you get invited for the second sh- uh the second show on penn and teller and that's during COVID as well um, and so that show normally has a live audience in the background where you get a lot of that energy um, but in this specific showing, you you only perform in front of Penn and Teller as well as uh, the the MC who's kind of coordinating the show, one of which, Teller, says absolutely nothing during the show the entire time. And so you pretty much only have two people <laughs> that you're, you have a back and forth with. And so how was that adjustment as well, even just kind of preparing for this show? The
1: preparing for the show... Oh, yeah, yeah. Then again, very enjoyable, but it wasn't easy. What stressful, I, I'm sure. Very, very stressful. What I ended <coughs> up doing for Penn and Taylor on this second appearance was a piece of magic that I developed during lockdown. And I had been doing it for maybe six months when I was invited to be part of the show. And all of these on virtual performances over Zoom, of course. So in that regard, I was comfortable with the piece already. I was getting comfortable with performing on a virtual setting, which where then again, communication pretty much flows one way. When I was invited to the show, Penn & Teller us It was hard because, as you mentioned, there were three people in the room, plus the the, the tech crew and et cetera, maybe 10 people in the room. But um, essentially it was performing for Penn, Taylor, and Alice on the host. So that was hard, not getting that feedback of the live audience. Thankfully, I was already comfortable with that specific piece of magic. And on the other hand, Penn and Taylor and Allison, the host, they are sweethearts. They are all so extremely supportive. (laughs) They want every single person in that room to shine brightly. So that also makes things much, much easier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the the show paid off, absolutely. It is incredible to watch even... even, uh, the virtual environment, but I'm sure it was incredible for Penn & Teller to kind of sit in front and just be puzzled at what you're doing. Um, and so it's interesting how you have this kind of transition, really stark shifts that lead up um, and kind of almost help you to adjust to that that setting for Penn & Teller. Um, but yeah, now I want to talk a little bit more about the performance itself. I'm I'm curious, you know, where where did this concept come from? I saw it live in one iteration of it when you were focusing on books live, but it's you're focusing on cards this time. I, sh- I should also explain the, the premise really quickly. You have, over COVID, uh, so much time on your hand. And you're explaining this right at the beginning of the performance. You have so much time. And you think to yourself, you know, what what can I spend this time doing? And so from the very first day of lockdown, you take a deck of cards and you memorize the placement of all of those cards uh, in their random order. And then every single day after, you take a new deck of cards and memorize it. And so once you get to Penn & Teller, you're standing in front of them with probably like 200, 300 different decks, so many different decks behind you, and are, are telling us that you have all of these decks memorized and you know where every single card in every single deck organized by date is behind you. Where did you get this idea? It's seemingly so absurd.
1: I take that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> the idea came from having time In my hands. The way I introduced that piece is, as you said, telling people about the experience of COVID lockdown happened. All of a sudden, all of us found ourselves with more time in our hands than usual. Some people started baking bread. Some people started brewing beer. I started memorizing decks of cards. (laughs) I've been very interested in the subject of human memory for about five, six years now, really? and uh, as as you mentioned, I when I was here and, at Vanderbilt, I did a demonstration, I think a short demonstration with a deck of cards, and then with a few books, a memory demonstration, which um, I like to think it's a good fit for a theatrical performance, but it's not a magic trick in the sense that there is no mystery in the sense of how on earth is he doing that? Because I'm telling you, I memorized all this information. <laughs> so, like 300,
0: 400, 500 paid books, you just have fully memorized yeah, each uh, word on every line. It's it's absolutely uh, incredible.
1: I have a, thank you very much, a little stack of books that I have <laughs> memorized. And I tell, as I tell people in the performance for the books, I, I am very clear about the fact that I did not memorize every single word. That would be insane. But I've memorized significant passages and bits of information for the demonstration. Anyway, so that pen and tailor piece that came out of life, being locked home with a lot of time in my hands and uh, my interest in memory. And of course, it took a little while to find a way to make this play a performance piece, in, in, instead of just telling you, hey, I am interested <coughs> in memory and we have a lot of time in our hands, how to build that into a theatrical performance. As, as we were talking about um, earlier, about a few minutes ago, how to turn an idea or a narrative that you want to explore in front of an audience into a performance piece. So. All of us having a lot of time in our hands was something we could and still to this day can relate based on that experience. And that led me to try to search for ways to explore that idea in front of an audience. The way I see it, as mentioned, I've always seen magic as an excuse for human interaction and doing this trick, gives me an excuse to talk about this idea that i find so fascinating how memory works and also how memory helps us keep track of the passage of time interesting interesting
0: right so yeah you you take this first bit i kind of break up the performance so a couple different sections and you, so you take that first bit to explain almost as you just did um not obviously nearly as in depth um as i have the privilege to hear um but you kind of explain you lay down the concept for what this is you know you have all these decks of cards and you know where somehow you know where every single card is in every single one um and so the audience is is going like what what, was going on how how can you actually do that and so you ask allison then you say um pick a random card pick a pick a random card as you're holding a deck um and you're able to or maybe, maybe you grab it. I think you, you actually grab a deck. Because you're able to pick a, a deck of cards and then pull off the top card being the Ace of Hearts, which she said it's the very top one. Um, and then you go the date after, this is where the Ace of Hearts is. And the date after, this is where the Ace of Hearts is. And so you're giving a little bit of validity to this statement that you just laid out before. And I'm dumbfounded, personally. I'm, like, I'm, I'm blown away by that. Um, and then you kind of continue that direction. You, know, you lay down the claim. You build on that narrative with that first instance. And then you ask Allison to pick a random day as well. Um, and she does so. And then you're able to, again, um, pick out the Ace of Hearts from that card. But also, meanwhile, as you're doing this, you're also laying down what you did on that specific day. You're like, on that day, oh, I didn't hit snooze. You know, I brewed my coffee and I got some memorizing immediately. And so in that way, you're not just memorizing all these cards, but you're also able to recall like the, an anecdote from that specific day, kind of building um, on the entertainment factor and filling in that dead space that would otherwise be silent. Um, and then so you lay that foundation. You continue that narrative even further. You include Penn and Teller into it. You ask Penn to uh, you know, ask for a random card, and then you ask Teller to, I believe, sign a position where that card is and so yeah he's he's not speaking at all he's using his hands um and you're able to grab a deck with that combination um and then you you continue that a little bit further again and you're you're able to still find this card and so in that way over the course of this fantastical performance you're you're able to deliver an increasing levels of intensity almost this same foundation that you spoke on earlier and so in that way, you really feel this narrative built throughout. And that narrative is kind of supported by these anecdotes that you're laying after each day and kind of continuing that entertainment factor and still a little bit of like, how does he remember what he's doing every day? I remember one of the first days you're like, yeah, that was the day um, that I slept in a little bit and went for a walk. And then a squirrel started following me on the walk. But I, I digress. I should get back to the performance. And you pull the card out immediately after. And everyone's like, ah. um, And so it's so interesting how you're able to kind of combine that, that storytelling aspect that's really core to this performance with the magic itself and the performance itself. I don't know if you want to speak on that at all.
1: Absolutely. That is most definitely where my heart is. In using the magic as an excuse to explore an idea and exploring this idea as an excuse to show people a really cool trick or something that hopefully will surprise and amaze them. As you mentioned, I could do that demonstration. I have 185 decks of cards behind me. I could say, hey, everyone, I memorized all of, all of those decks. Name a number between 1 and 185. 72. I take deck number 72, Name a card, the seven of spades. Okay, let me try to remember the seven of spades is in position 17. We count to position 17. There it is, the seven of spades. On one level, that might be very amazing, but it might not be very amusing. Mm, And if you do it over and over and over, because the claim that I am attempting to prove is that I really memorize the position of every single card in every single one of those 185 decks of cards. I would not do the trick 185 times because that might get a little tedious, but I end up pulling five different decks of cards. Some people call uh, call, um, cards at random, numbers at random, dates at random, which... If you extrapolate, of course, if I took five different decks of cards at random, called by the audience, mm. the implication is that this guy really memorized every <laughs> single one. Because instead of calling July second, I could have called July third, he would have known the card in that deck. So the proof I want to, the, the the claim I want to prove needs requires me to pull a few deck of cards, but also it's. To me, all about the narrative. What is the story that you are trying to communicate while you do it? But because then again, magic is a very powerful art form in the sense that it can trigger surprise and amazement and astonishment. But if there isn't a narrative behind it, uh, it can become a little tedious very quickly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so you, you very much so kind of nail that on the head. You, you lay this foundation... Kind of at the tier one, um, and you really build up towards almost this like climax where um, you're kind of like, oh, this this we might be pushing the bar a little bit, but I think we should try it. Um, you're kind of bringing the audience in to see if it'll work. You're putting that suspense on it, and then allowing for that like exciting release right at the end when when the card turns out to be exactly what. Uh, you had said it would be, which is incredible. You know, you you are working along that narrative line for sure.
1: Yeah. Say, but one of the, as you mentioned, one of the for the last piece, uh, for the last part of this, the idea is that I ask someone to name a card, and I ask someone to name a number between one and fifty-two. And let's say that uh, the number is seventeen and the, the card is the Ace of Hearts. And I tried to search in my memory, okay, was there a day in which that card was at that exact position? And of course, there always isn't one. And what I tell people is uh, one way to think about it is that there are 52 cards in a deck, 52 potential positions. That would be uh, that would be 52 times 52 over 2,700 decks of cards that we would need to yeah. cover every possible permutation that would have been over seven years of lockdown. So it oh doesn't gosh. always hit at the first time. So yeah. I would ask people again, let's try a different combination. Seven of diamonds in position 17 in position... 32 okay i think that's there somewhere and the idea that that i I, i'm trying to communicate one of those and and the words that i say is okay let's try one more time when i propose this far-fetched idea of random card random number let's see if there's a match let's try this might not work but we might as well try better oh, to try and fail than, than live wondering what would have ever happened if we tried, right? Right, yeah. My hope is that people walk out of that room thinking, wow, that guy has a crazy memory. <laughs> My hope is also that people go out of that room thinking, wow, by remembering decks of playing cards, he has been able to keep track of the passage of time. That's interesting. My hope is also that people walk out of the room thinking that's very interesting what he said. I think there's some truth to that. Better to try and fail than to live wondering what would have happened. Yeah, maybe it's worth taking some risks. So my hope is that people walk out of there with something that will stay with them, hopefully other than, wow, that was very cool. What's for dinner? What's next? Hopefully some of these ideas will resonate and linger in there for a while.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say, like activate some resonation in the audience members, kind of bring these ideas and and keep them present in their minds. I remember you you had a a similar approach. You said very similar things in the live performance um, that I was able to see and kind of spread it across those three different main acts. And you're also able to include that a lot with kind of different quotes. I remember you brought up Ray Bradbury a lot and mentioned him a lot in the performances that I got to see and really kind of hammered home these different morals that you're trying to imbue upon people in the performance, which is really incredible to see.
1: Something I... uh, This is one of my favorites. I often quote um, Steve Martin when Mm. I talk about memory. And then again, I got interested in, in, in memory about five, six years ago. I always thought... I was stuck with a bad memory. I always thought you either have a good memory or a bad memory, that's it. A few years ago, I discovered that there are certain techniques that you can use to train memory and that like a muscle memory can be exercised. As Steve Martin observed, thankfully, perseverance is a great substitute for talent. (laughs) And then again, my hope is that also people also walk out of that room with that, Little piece of information of the on the back of their minds. Oh yeah, maybe if this guy can do it, maybe I can do it as well.
0: Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. I'm terrible with names, and I, like I've I've made a note to kind of like use some practicing techniques to nail down names a little bit better because I'm just such an airhead sometimes with that. Um, but yeah, no, I I really I I see that uh, communication going on with the audience, and I also see that represented in kind of your almost like trademark. Uh, stage presence. I don't I don't want to say persona because you're you're not altogether different. It's not like you're you're putting on a cloak when you go on stage and you're a different person, but you do have such an incredible and like almost gravitational and magnetic stage presence in how you conduct yourself on stage. And that was really clear in this as well. You know, you're you're filling what would otherwise be these blank spaces with these anecdotes and you're you're making these kind of like humorous um additions to the story that's going on, making it more amusing as well as awe-inspiring, and I, I really appreciate that, uh, I, I I would say kind of like application of the theatrics that you probably got from that actor training into the set that I saw uh, on Penn & Teller, so that was incredible to see, and I also want to say there is this this air of mutual surprise that you were able to imbue on the set, you know, after each of the major um, reveals of the cards on this Penn & Teller performance, you kind of looked just as shocked as I was. And I think that's, that's a really interesting addition to make, because you could go the route of, like, oh, yeah, I'm a very self-confident magician, like, I know these tricks are coming through, but it almost makes it more, uh, engaging to see that you're looking as surprised as I am, and we're both kind of in this together to see if it works. Um, just in how you said, you know, I don't know if this will work out on that last trick, Um, but you still think that we should try it. And so I'm not 100% confident it'll work out. I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to see if it'll work out. I think that's a really incredible and intentional addition to the performances that I've seen. Uh,
1: Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, That is another one of those beats that has evolved through... Conscious work. Right. I'm genuinely excited when I perform magic. I'm, I'm genuinely really enjoying the performance. Yeah. However, at some point I discovered that, you know, if, if you are watching a live performance, let's say a stand up comedian, more often than not, there is one person who would laugh first, and that somehow gives everyone else. Permission to laugh. Sometimes yeah. you are in a live performance where, then again, let's say a stand up comedian and no one laughs. Even if it's funny, oh. the, the atmosphere feels a little heavy and maybe yeah. there's a few awkward claps every now and then. But I think more often than not, in a live performance, we are taking our cues from everybody else. So if I'm performing, and I have someone who reacts very outwardly that will be conducive to a great performance, high energy. That first person who reacts or gasps, gasps or, or swears, <laughs> that that energy is contagious. Really. And at some point I discovered that I can be that person. I can be the one who gets amazed first. Interesting. And that Gives, I think, that leads the way and that allows everybody else to also be amazed right. within reason, of course. Yeah. Because if I'm making a big deal out of my own tricks and patting my own back, that <laughs> would get tedious very soon. But I'm genuinely excited. A lot of what I do, in a lot of what I do, there's some risk involved that this might or might not work. Some legitimately. On the tips of my toes, thinking, I hope this works. I hope this works. <laughs> but instead of hiding that and playing it cool with a straight face full of confidence, absolutely. I just let that out. People, hey, you guys, everyone. This yeah. is I don't know if this is going to work. Fingers crossed. Let's see how it goes. And I think that also lets people lower their defenses. I get excited because it works. Everyone else gets gets excited because it worked.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing when you say that is, I got to be the first person in the room to always be laughing at performances and shopping. I got I got to be that person too. That's that is incredibly infectious. I notice that, yeah, uh, but uh, I don't think it consciously too much, you know.
1: Absolutely, yes, it is, and and that usually comes naturally, of course, yeah. because some people are a little more reserved. Some people yeah. are more excited and excitable out there, but uh, more often than not, if there's somebody who reacts outwardly that is contagious and that that gives all of us permission to to react as well
0: yeah absolutely and i think that just kind of speaks to your control over audiences and being able to kind of lead the path a little bit and have people follow that it's incredible yeah overall i really love this performance it was incredible and i believe that penn and teller thought the same way uh were they inspired in any way by this performance to to create something of their own
1: Yes, there's a story there. So I went to, they shoot in Vegas, right? Their right. TV show, and Teller I went to Vegas a few days after we shot my appearance, I get an email from Penn Jillette's personal email address. Hey. I freak out a little. Ever since I got interested in magic, those two, Penn and Teller, have been two of my heroes. So first of all, being on their stage, it was such a pleasure. And then I get an email from Penn telling me, hey, Secret. It was very nice to see you on the stage. Ever since you were here, Taylor and I have been thinking about your appearance. And if we have your blessing, we would love to play with that idea and perform it on our stage. That's crazy. And we had a meeting, and Ben explained, "Hey, this is what we'd like to do." And I said, "Yeah, take the idea, do whatever." you want with it you're my heroes go for it and they are currently performing on their vegas show a piece that was inspired by my performance which at its very core is the same it's a memory demonstration but it also looks very different in their voice and in their style
0: yeah that must be so validating to have like two icons two heroes within your craft look at you and be like hey like this is incredible. I want to incorporate this in my own work as
1: well. Absolutely. It has been one of the biggest honors of my that's, life. Yeah, I've been on um, Penn & Taylor Us twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if people might not be familiar with it, they essentially the idea of the show is that you go to their stage, you do a trick, and if you fool them, meaning if, you can, if they cannot explain how you did the thing, they give you a nice trophy. So on my first appearance, I fooled them. On my second appearance, the ones we are discussing with the memory demonstration, I did not fool them. However, this led them to develop their take on this thing. I think that's a bigger honor than even getting the trophy. Yeah. As mentioned, those two are my heroes in magic, they are within the magic community and even outside of the magic community, a big deal. That would be like if you're an actor, you tell somebody, yeah, this guy Steven Spielberg called me and he said he wanted to use my idea in his next movie for <laughs> me well, as a magician. Oh, it's such an honor. It's yeah. very, very exciting.
0: Man, that is absolutely incredible. Um, well, Siegfried, it's been really amazing to get to talk to you a little bit Um, This has been lovely speaking, but I do want to ask, before we end the episode, do you have anything you want to share with the viewers, the listeners to this podcast?
1: Anything to share. Back to our conversation at the very beginning. Seek out magic. If you are a magic fan, if you have experienced live magic a few times in your life. Keep going for it. If you haven't, hopefully we have sparked a little curiosity. I've always believed that magic is an art form that is very easy to fall in love with. It's very likely that if you see a magician performing live, You will find it interesting if this person has done their due diligence and they have practiced uh, um, and, and rehearsed diligently. If it's a polished professional performance, chances are that you will like and enjoy magic very much. And hopefully you will seek it out. As mentioned, many people have a standard and a specific taste for music and film and literature. My hope would be that more people watch more magic so they can start picking on the nuances and differences and hopefully even develop a taste for magic as people have a taste for different art forms.
0: Absolutely. And how can my viewers, my listeners, you know, access a little bit more of your work? Is there a website or a social media handle that you can put out?
1: Yes, please. Website, Siegfriedtieber.com. My name is a handful, but I bet it will be on the name of the episode or somewhere in there. SiegfriedTieber.com And I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook, on both of those at SiegfriedTiber.
0: Amazing. Well, Siegfried, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you out here in Nashville. Um, You have a great rest of your day. Um, And thank you all for listening to Memento Podcast. Thank you all again for listening to Memento. Stay up to date with Memento news by following our Instagram at Memento.pod and follow our TikTok at Memento Podcast for more content. Now, what's your Memento?